0: Today on Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick.
1: Real love is calling, Sometimes people will read Matthew 24, Luke 21, which talks about all the signs of the second coming of Christ. And people will have a checklist in their mind, and they will say, I don't know that we're that quick to some of these events, so we're probably further away from His second coming than, than we think. And the truth is that there's nothing in the Bible that tells us He has to rapture the church just immediately before the, the seven-year tribulation. He could rapture the church decades before the tribulation comes.
0: This is Cornerstone Connection, The radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Nehemiah. The desire for gaining a better understanding of end times events is truly a blessing that each of us should embrace as believers. However, we also have to be careful that in our pursuit of understanding, we don't fall into the trap of adopting false doctrines. In today's message, Pastor Gary warns us about the dangers of going beyond what Scripture teaches us regarding the end times. In our study, we learn that while the Bible might seem vague at times, it's important that we don't go beyond the text in an attempt to gain a better understanding. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in Nehemiah 3 for part two of today's message titled The Second Coming of Christ and Judgment Day.
1: There are eight gates around the old city of Jerusalem. This is the oldest one, built in the 6th century AD. It is the only double arched. Gate, you'll notice, and if you notice something else, it is the only gate that is walled up. It is blockaded. Now, why is it like that? It's been like that since 1541. And here's the story behind it. In the early 1500s, around 1517, the Muslim Turks came to Israel and incorporated it and overtook the land as part of the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire meant that the Muslims who were Turkish ruled the world at this particular time. And uh, one of the sultans of the day was Suleiman I, otherwise known as Suleiman the Magnificent, who in 1541 gave the orders for this gate to be walled up. Now, why did Suleiman the Magnificent ask for this gate to be walled up, order that this gate should be walled up? Because The Muslims knew from the Jewish Bible that the Messiah would come through the east gate according to the prophecy of Ezekiel 43. So Suleiman the Magnificent said, we're going to prevent the Messiah from coming into this city, not under my watch, and so we're going to wall up the city gate on the east side here. And in addition, the Muslims also decided, we're going to have a Muslim cemetery here because they also knew that Messiah was supposed to be a priest. And as a colon, as a priest, priests would not normally walk through a cemetery because they would defile themselves by being near dead bodies. So the Muslims, in effect, said to the Messiah, we're going to wall up the East Gate, and in addition, we dare you to come, but we're going to put a cemetery in front of the East Gate. We double-dog dare you. <laughs> as if... You could actually keep out Jesus Christ when he returns, folks. When he comes back, he's going through the east gate. With all due respect to Suleiman the Magnificent, may Allah bless his turban. He's coming back and he's going through the east gate. Amen? It's not like Jesus is going to show up and like, okay, I've told you I was going to return. Here I am. I've come again. But ah, somebody blocked up the east gate. (laughs) He's coming again. And we need to be ready for him. Now, listen, folks, there are about a thousand prophecies in the Bible related to the second coming of Christ. Three times as many prophecies concerning his second coming as were given us concerning his first coming. And so in the next, like, you know, 20 minutes, I'm going to try to give you a broad overview of the second coming of Christ. But on our journey through the Bible is what we do here at Cornerstone. We'll talk about his second coming at many times when we go through Scripture because both Old and New Testament speak of it. But in terms of summarizing it into a few main points, I'm going to give you three points today about the second coming of Christ. This is a major doctrine of the church. This is the hope of the church, that not only is it true that we serve a risen Lord, but we serve a Lord who is coming again, and a Lord who is going to receive us unto himself that we might be with him forever and ever. So we need to be ready. Three points about the second coming of Christ. First one is this. The second coming of Christ will occur in two phases. Not everybody understands this, so I want to make sure everybody is clear about what the Bible says concerning the second coming of Christ. It tells us in the Bible that there will be two phases to a second coming. The first phase is in the air to rescue the church. It's what we sometimes call the rapture. And then the second phase is when he comes on earth to establish his kingdom for a thousand years. And then after that, there will be a new heaven and a new earth and we'll spend eternity with the Lord. But there are actually two phases. Sometimes when we speak of the second coming of Christ, unless you know the context or the verse, are we talking about when he comes in the air to rescue the church? Or are we talking about when he comes all the way to the earth to establish his kingdom? Phase one is separated from phase two by the tribulation period. Between Revelation 6 and 18, those chapters in the Bible detail cataclysmic, catastrophic events that will happen on the earth for a period of seven years. It separates phase one from phase two. In Revelation 6 to 18, it speaks about God's final wake-up call to a Christ-rejecting, God-forsaking world, where He will unleash all kinds of events From asteroids to floods to turning water to blood to all kinds of things that will happen as a final clarion call to wake up a lost and dying world. There will be the opportunity for people to come to trust Christ as their Savior during that period of the tribulation. But there will also be many, the Bible says, who will raise a fist in rebellion to God and oppose him and will die in their sins. But it is God's final way of trying to wake up people to who he really is. But phase one is separated from phase two by that period of the tribulation, and that will be really for another Bible study. I want to talk, first of all, about phase one. What does it mean that God is going to rescue the church? What the Bible tells us is that there will be a generation that does not experience death. For believers who know Christ as their Savior, there's going to come a time when the Lord will come in the clouds, in the air, and there will be a trumpet call of God that will sound. And Christians who are alive at that time when when Christ sounds that trumpet call, the Christians who are alive on the earth will be snatched up and taken up to heaven bodily removed from the earth without experiencing death. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that we will not all sleep. It's a euphemism for death. He said, not everybody's going to die who knows Christ, but we will all be changed in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. In other words, we will get a glorified body on the way up. We will be changed from here to there when the trumpet call of God sounds. Now, 1 Thessalonians 4 records it like this, verses 16 to 18. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Now let me explain. When someone dies who knows Christ today, their spirit goes to heaven. Their body goes to the ground and decays. But because we are to get a glorified body like Jesus has when he rose from the dead... This passage refers to the fact that our remains that have decayed will become glorified and will rise to be reunited with our spirit, which is with the Lord. So those who have gone on before us and are in heaven get their glorified body just a moment before the rapture occurs. Listen to this. The trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first after that we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them to meet the lord in the air and so we shall be with the lord forever therefore encourage one another with these words that's what paul writes there in that passage and so we need to understand that there's going to come this moment and nobody knows when it is when there's this trumpet call And all the Christians who are on the earth at that time who believe Christ as their Lord and Savior will be physically snatched. Now, in that verse that I just read, it says, we will be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. That word, that phrase, to be caught up, in the original Greek language, which is what the New Testament was written in, is the Greek word harpazo. It means to be snatched or seized. When it was translated in Latin, the word was used raptus which is where we get our English word rapture. The word rapture does not appear anywhere in the Bible, not the word. But the teaching of the rapture certainly appears in many places in Scripture. And what it teaches is that there will be a time when there's going to be a whole generation of people who know Christ, who don't experience death, trumpet call sounds, we're out of here. Now, some people have asked me out of curiosity... Is the trumpet call of God, when that is sounded, does everybody on the earth hear that, or only Christians hear that, okay? Is it, is it something everybody hears, or is it like a dog whistle, you know, where the trumpet call sounds and only Christians can hear that sound? I don't know the answer to that. All I know is, when that trumpet is sounded, I am out of here. Bye-bye. <laughs> Adios, amigos. I'm gone. And so should you, if you know Christ is your Savior, you're going to be gone, And so there's that wonderful trumpet call. That's phase one, being snatched from the earth. Now, however, phase two is when Christ comes at the end of the tribulation period. The event that will culminate the tribulation period is the battle of Armageddon. Revelation chapter 16 speaks of this. And it tells us that there will be this horrific battle that occurs in the Valley of Jezreel in Israel. And that there's a place within the Valley of Jezreel in the shadow of a hill called Megiddo, the town of Megiddo. There's a hill there. Now there's a tell. There's the remains, the archaeological ruins. And Har Megiddo in Hebrew, the hill of Megiddo, is where we get our English word Armageddon. And the battle will ensue from various nations that will converge in in the Valley of Jezreel there at Har Megiddo, who will oppose God and oppose Israel. And they will come to wage war. Now again... Christians have already been removed, okay? We've been spared the tribulation. And I know, by the way, that there are various schools of thought on when Christians are actually removed from the earth. I hold to, as many do, I believe the great preponderance of Scripture holds to a pre-tribulation removal of the church. In other words, that the church will be removed, will be raptured before the tribulation period. Now, others believe that it happens in the middle of the tribulation. Still others believe it happens after and that Christians go through the tribulation. I, I, don't, I don't have enough scripture to validate the other views, but I can tell you that good godly people will disagree on the matter. As a pre-trib position guy, I can tell you if you're post-trib, hold to your view, and I can just tell you right now when I'm gone, you can have my house and my cars. Alright? <laughs> because I'm going to be out of here. If you want to be post-trib, or fine, but you can have my house because I won't be needing it. But anyhow, Christ is going to return at the end of the tribulation period there's this battle of armageddon and the bible says in second thessalonians 2 8 because the battle of armageddon is incited by the antichrist and the bible says in second thessalonians 2 8 and then the lord jesus will overthrow the antichrist with the breath of his mouth and destroy him by the splendor of his coming and the very return of christ will put an end to the battle of armageddon and jesus will rule and reign from jerusalem the Bible says it like this. This is the second phase. Zechariah 14, 4 to 5. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half of the mountain moving north and half moving south. You will flee by my mountain valley, for it will extend to Azel. You will flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. And then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. So, first phase, he snatches us in the clouds. And then there's a period of tribulation. Second phase, Battle of Armageddon, Jesus comes down, puts an end to the battle, is victorious, rules and reigns for a thousand years. And then there's a new heaven and a new earth. But because of all this, here's point number two the second coming of Christ can happen at any moment, at least in regards to phase one. Okay? Jesus Christ could sound that trumpet at any moment, and the church will be taken. In Matthew 24, Jesus said this, No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill, one will be taken, and the other left." Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. Now listen to what he compares it to. He says, it's like the days of Noah. So people were living, they were were marrying, they were giving in marriage, they were were conducting business like everything was normal. He says, it's just going to be a normal day when the Lord returns. He says, two men will be out in the field, one will be taken, the other left. He's speaking of the rapture. He's speaking about a moment when there's two people in the field, one's a believer, one's not, two people at work. All of a sudden, you're gone, your co-worker's left. I hope it's that way and not the other way around. You're, you're left and your co-worker's gone. Well, I hope your co-worker goes too. But you know, my point is that there's going to be a moment when he says two, two women are out working. One is taken, the other left. One is the believer. She's going to be taken. Jesus says, you don't know when I'm going to come back. You don't know that first phase of the trumpet call of God. So be ready, be watching, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. Now, a word of caution here, for those of you who understand about these phases and your understanding about the rapture and all this kind of... One of the things, however, that people assume, and I want to just kind of knock the assumption down, because I don't want you to have a false sense of security about this in terms of when he might come. Some people think that when the church is raptured, it immediately triggers the seven year of tribulation and then the second phase. So people sandwich it really tightly. They say, okay, when the church is raptured, it immediately triggers seven years of tribulation, Revelation 6 to 18, and then Jesus Christ returns, Revelation 19. And it's not that neat, friends. There's nothing in the Bible that tells us phase one and two are separated by exactly the seven years of tribulation. The fact of the matter is, phase one could happen, and then months, years, or decades later, the seven years of tribulation. There's nothing in the Bible that tells us the time period of the gap between phase one and phase two. And the reason I say this is because sometimes people will read Matthew 24, Luke 21, which talks about all the signs of the second coming of Christ, and people will have a checklist in their mind, and they will say, I don't know that we're that quick to some of these events, so we're probably further away from His second coming than than we think. And the truth is that there's nothing in the Bible that tells us He has to rapture the church just immediately before the seven-year tribulation. He could rapture the church decades before the tribulation comes. And I say this because we need to be vigilant and watching and ready because it could happen at any moment, which leads me to point number three. Because the second coming of Christ is imminent, we must be ready. We have to be ready. In Luke 12, Jesus said this, "...be dressed, ready for service, and keep your lamps burning." Like men waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. You also must be ready because the son of man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Peter in his epistle 2 Peter 3. He talks about the return of Christ, the end of the age and the earth will be destroyed and a new heaven and a new earth and he talks about all the whole thing related to the second coming, phase 1, phase 2. And then Peter asks this in 2 Peter 3:11. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? How should we be living? In anticipation of the second coming of Christ, what kind of people ought you to be? And then he answers it. You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That's what he says. We ought to be living in holiness. We ought to be living godly lives because Jesus could come at any moment. In fact, at the end of that section, 2 Peter 3, 14, he says, so then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Are you at peace with God? Are you ready for his second coming? Are you at a good place where you would say, yeah, I'm at peace with God. Whenever he comes, I'm ready. We must be in a right place and expect and look for the second coming of Christ, which leads me to the last five minutes about the inspection gate. The inspection gate in your Bibles, King James says, Mifkad. Mifkad is the Hebrew word, and the root word is pakad. Pakkad means to assemble, to muster, to gather for review. The purpose of the inspection gate was this. It was where all the troops gathered to be inspected by the king. That's why in your English Standard Version, it uses the word muster. They would muster the troops. They would gather the troops there, Mifkad, and they would be reviewed. The army of Israel would stand at attention before the king of Israel, and they would be inspected at the inspection gate. That's where they would gather. That's where the king would review the troops. There's coming a day when every single one of us will have to stand before the king to be reviewed, he will inspect our lives. Jesus says in Luke 18, verse 8, when the Son of Man comes to the earth, will he find faith on the earth? Will he find men and women who will be living their lives for his glory that he can inspect them and see them in the righteousness of Christ because there will be a day of accountability for every single one of us. It's number 20 on the list. The inspection gate reminds us of the final judgment. We must each be ready to give an account of our lives before God. Paul says in Romans 14, 11, and 12, It is written, As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me and every tongue will confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Now the good news, friends, is that as a believer in Jesus Christ and my having trusted him as my Lord and Savior because he died on a cross for my sins, when that day comes and I stand before the Lord and he inspects me, he's going to see me not in my own righteousness. I have no worth. He's going to see me in the righteousness of His Son, Jesus Christ. And that's how all of us who know Christ will stand before our Father. Not in our own merit. We don't present or offer anything of goodness or value that warrants eternity with Him. The only reason we can lay claim to eternity with the Lord is because we come through the cross. We come because of what Christ has done for us. And because of what Christ has done for us, he wraps us in his righteousness and we stand before the Father. Well, listen, Jude in the end of his epistle summarized it like this. To him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before His glorious presence without fault and with great joy to the only God our Savior be power and majesty and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord both now and forevermore. Amen. He is the one who will present us without fault because of what He's done on the cross. So when He inspects us, He will see us through the righteousness of Christ if you know Him as your Savior. Amen.
0: All be- Nehemiah faced a daunting task of leading one of the waves of returning exiles and rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. The work was hard and slow and filled with setbacks and struggles, including enemies who came up against them. The great thing about Nehemiah was that he wasn't a priest and he wasn't a Levite. In fact, he wasn't in professional ministry in any way. You may not be a pastor, but God can use your experience and willingness all the same. Who knows what amazing things He may have in store for you if you'll open yourself to His leading and step out in faith. You have a great journey awaiting you. Just ask God to open your eyes to His plan. We'd love to pray for you along this journey too. Are you facing a difficult situation? Call us and share your prayer requests at 703-771-1500. To hear more great messages from Pastor Gary Hamrick, look us up online at cornerstoneconnection.cc or subscribe to our podcast. You can also take Cornerstone Connection with you on our mobile app to listen to whenever and wherever you are. That's it for today. We pray you continue to seek God in your everyday experiences and that you feel His presence in your life today. Be sure to tune in again for another exciting edition of Cornerstone Connection.
1: They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know But still you know You're not